This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Commercial with a state podcast. And welcome back to the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast. I'm Corey Wright. And I'm Melissa Moretti. And Melissa, today we have an exceptionally exciting show, in my opinion, because there's a whole bunch of stuff that we're going to unveil today that people probably have no idea about. We have Tim Sportshoots from Sportshoots and Companies, construction lawyers, and he's going to dive into all the exciting stuff that goes on on the construction side of the law, which a lot of people don't realize that when they're building these big towers and doing all these massive tenant build-outs, all of the legal process that has to take place before you can probably really put, literally put a shovel in the ground. Yeah, a lot right? of things that a lot of things that people are going to have no idea. And after they're going to see these things swinging in the air on development sites, and they're going to now understand how that crane swings and yeah. how it can go over properties and how it can. It's a whole other lens. It is. So we have Tim on today to talk all about it. Very exciting. Unveils a whole different part of the business than most people probably realize. So really exciting that. Also, interest rates in the States went up. Yeah. They went up 25 basis points. Mm -hmm. um, we have a very exciting show coming up. We're doing a show all about the Silicon Valley bank collapse. Awesome. And how, yeah, <laughs> and, and how that may or may not affect the Canadian real estate market through interest rates. Yeah, that's so, going to be a good one. It'll be a really exciting show. We're going to sort of unveil how all that stuff done. But just to give sort of like a sneak peek is obviously the Americans raised their rates this past week, 25 basis points. We have an upcoming meeting here in Canada. So it'll be interesting to see how that functions. But when you look at what's happened down south, the feds find themselves in a very challenging situation because you have interest rates that on the last meeting, Powell mentioned that rates will most likely go up this year because inflation is still quite high. But when you have the collapse of the 12th uh, largest bank in the States being Silicon Valley Bank, uh, you got to create confidence in the banking sector from the public. So uh, we're going to dive all into that and see what happens. But predictions now is rates maybe come down a little bit faster than first expected towards the latter part of 2023 and early 2024 because of the banking sector down south. But we have a whole show on that. We're going to dive into what happened, why it happened, what does it mean for us? potentially, what does that mean for the interest rates around the world? So that'll be really, really exciting coming up. But speaking of interest rates, I've been talking to people who are out there buying and selling real estate, and they're getting into multiple offers again on your neck of the woods on the residential side. Yeah. What is happening? You bet. Yeah, I think there's a lot, a lot of confidence in the industry on the part of buyers. They're coming back, they're thinking interest rates are going to go down or they're holding steady. They're seeing that the last few months was probably their window of opportunity, yep. and they're going... Okay, it's go time, right? But it's it's again, you know, everybody wants to move when everyone else moves. Yeah, and and you're seeing that. Well, if so. you if you look at the uh, recent reports that came out talking about the immigration numbers, yeah, and we want to apply that to simple supply and demand is why I will take the bold statement and say Vancouver real estate, BC real estate in most major markets will 
uh, far outlive us when it comes to supply and demand, which that creates a housing crunch, which creates a pricing problem. The markets will stabilize and they will come back. And two years down the road, chances are they will be much higher than they are today and probably still continue that trajectory because we have a supply and demand issue that will outlive us. Yeah. And I think most people recognize that. Most people can say, yeah, that seems valid, but they're still waiting for the bottom, right? They think, oh, I'm, I'm going to get in at the bottom and, and I'm just going to hang out and, and wait. But it was the bottom. The bottom is past. I think so. Yeah, jump in the boat. Off we go. <laughs> jump in Let's the boat. Go. Off we go. And speaking about population growth, supply and demand issues, let's get to our episode with Tim Sportshoots of Sportshoots and Company discussing everything related to construction law. Enjoy, guys. All right, let's go. This podcast is presented by Impact Commercial. Impact Commercial, John, Allen, the team over there are fantastic. They've been, all been on the show. They have, yeah. Friends of the show. Great guys. Wealth of experience. They can help with all your commercial financing needs. Whether it's owner-occupiers, land development funds, commercial investments, or multifamily, these guys got you covered. And they recently obtained their CMHC correspondent lender status. So for all your commercial lending needs, visit them at impactcommercial.ca. That's impactcommercial.ca. All right, we're here today with Tim Sportshoots of Sportshoots Law, construction lawyers, specialists. Tim, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. How are you guys? Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. We're really excited to have you on today because a lot of our listeners, I think, will be very surprised all of the legal work that goes into building all these big towers. But before we get into that, Tim, can you tell our guests a little bit more about yourself and you know how you got to where you are today running the law firm? Sure. So I, uh, I'll start at uh, university. So I, I went to Florida State University in uh, Tallahassee, in Florida. Uh, I studied accounting and real estate finance. After that, I, I moved um, up to Vancouver, out of all places, in 2009. And I started my career with a bulk excavation contractor, and I did also consulting work for underpinning agreements and just uh, various other smaller contractors in the interior and also here on the coast. And as it happens in construction, we would um, frequently get into disputes with uh, other contractors or municipalities, and we would go down to Vancouver to hire some of the more technical construction lawyers who I would then brief an update on, on the dispute and explain it to them and, and explain the chronology of events and the fact patterns. And um, they kept telling me I should go back to law school. So that's what I ended up doing. And um, in 2014, I, I ended up enrolling in, in uh, law school at UBC Law moved down here. And then in 2017, I started at, I consider the best uh, boutique construction law firms, Shapiro, Hankinson, Knudsen. I worked there for a couple of years. And then I jumped over to Singleton Reynolds, a more national platform, um, also a, a large construction law firm. They do a lot of infrastructure law. And uh, in 2020, early 2020, I uh, launched my own firm and I haven't looked back. Good for you. No, I know I've, I've uh, I mean, we really appreciate taking the time today to come join us here. A lot of people don't understand what construction law entails. A lot of people, you know, probably have no idea of how these towers get built and things like air, you know, you mean you got to secure air rights 
to swing cranes. You have things like underpinning, dealing with underground and stuff like that. Tim, maybe can you just give us maybe a high-level breakdown of just the types of areas of law that construction law covers, and then we'll dive into a few of them? Sure. It's it, it's always funny when you tell people what what I do at, at, around a table because they just stare at me with a blank blank stare. They don't they don't know at all. They 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 always think I'm I'm super slow and, and I have no I have no real business doing this. So I, I I'm I, I'll try to explain this area of the law. Um, a lot of lawyers, as you know, they they specialize in specific areas. This is something where you know, you have generally litigators and solicitors. So solicitors draft mostly agreements. Those are like your corporate attorneys that, you know, are on like suits, for example. And then you have the the guys who go to court and those are the litigators. So a lot of construction lawyers, they do both um, because it, it, it matches, it, it flows naturally into one of one another. So I help some of the, the largest developers around town, a lot of trade contractors, a lot of material suppliers in all aspects of the construction project. So, so um, the design phase, the construction phase, and the post-construction phase. So there's various things that come up. The flow of payments, non-payments, then collection of money. So that naturally runs into claims of lien registration under the Builders Lien Act. Then you have the lien enforcement requirement under the Supreme Court civil rules. So any lien claimant who files a lien must commence a Supreme Court lien enforcement action within a certain deadline under the act. So you can see how it's almost, it it naturally flows into going to court as well as drafting, you know, various development agreements, amending existing construction contracts like CCDC contracts, CCA contracts, all of those contracts need amending. and, And that's all that I do. I do have a great associate now who's joined me. He's a fifth year call and uh, he does strictly litigation. So it's a very interesting area of the law. At least I think so. So Tim, you, you touched very briefly there on uh, CCDC contracts and CCA contracts. Could you mind maybe explain those for the listeners, what they would be with regards to construction? Yeah, of course. So so in construction, there's there's always been this this problem with equity around how to structure contracts. So um, between generally you have the traditional model of having an owner of land, then a GC, a general contractor, and then below that you would have certain trade contractors and material suppliers. So these contracts, you know, whoever drafts them, if I'm representing the general contractor, I'm going to have the general contractor's best interest in mind. And oftentimes what you find is in this world, when you have lawyers who might not engage in this type of work regularly, and they don't understand the dynamics in this industry, they might draft a contract that is so inequitable to the other party that it that it creates a a situation right from the get go before shovels are in the ground that that is that is so um, problematic for the parties that it, it just it, it creates friction from day one. So you want to have a very equitable type of an agreement. And what industry participants did a while back, they created these standard form contracts. And when I say CCDC and CCA, those are the standard form uh, entities. So the Canadian Construction Documents Committee and then the Canadian Construction Association, that's CCDC and CCA. 
And these associations, they created these documents with all industry stakeholders involved. So you'd have owners, consultants, trade contractors, general contractors, developers. So it was, it was intended to be equally weighed for, for the parties involved. And, and you have various agreements under these organizations. You have, you know, CCDC 2, CCDC 3, 4, 5A, 5B, 17s. You have CCA 1s, 19. So there's, there's many of them, and they require to be amended uh, um, because naturally some of the clauses just simply don't work. You can't always make a standard agreement fit for all issues that might arise on a, on a certain project or some of the risk profiles of a certain project or risk allocation you have to do. So, Tim, one thing that I'm really interested to hear about, and I know before I was telling you this before we hit record, I, me and Melissa were talking about you know the various types of law that you encompass, and one of those things is underpinning. Can you maybe explain, A, what underpinning is for those listeners that don't know and the importance of it when you're a developer and you're trying to build or, in that, in that case, go down under the surface to most likely construct parking? Yeah, so I'll kind of bunch this into another uh, area of the law. So you you generally have this, um, and and all your listeners will understand. You know the the general law around trespass, and if you own a property, you have very strict borders to that property. So, and that border will flow into the air uh, to a certain extent, and also below ground. So if if you are my neighbor. I cannot simply start digging and then stick a an Ebo anchor through your lot without getting your express authorization to do that. Because if I did that, I would be trespassing and potentially creating a nuisance for your land. So if I want to enter your land, whether it's it's above ground, in the air, or underground, I need to get your express written approval generally it doesn't have well it should be in writing because you want to register it on title so that also flows nicely into the crane overswing agreements that a lot of the larger developers have to sign with those lots adjacent to their development site same idea um although it's not a physical entry into the land underground like a like an anchor would be to hold back the bulk excavation it would be uh you're swinging a crane over over the the neighboring lot and that could happen you know whether the crane is sitting weather veining overnight so just by by the wind it's it's blowing over a lot or if the crane is simply during the the regular hours the working hours swinging over a neighboring lot you have to get that neighboring lots authorization generally, because if you don't, that neighbor might get annoyed by you. And there's also a danger with the counterweights of some cranes swinging over. So you want to, you want to, you know, discuss that with your neighbors openly and, and, and proactively, because you want to explain to them, look, we're going to swing only this direction and not have counterweights. And when we do swing over your backyard for a year, um, we're not going to have it loaded up with a bunch of heavy items. We're, we're going to be you know, aware of, of this being a nuisance to you. And here's an agreement we propose. Um, and if you sign this, then maybe we can also negotiate, for example, a, a reciprocal agreement. So you want to create uh, an idea of reciprocity between the parties. So the neighboring lot 
who has to endure the crane swinging over their lot, they, they will then get also a right of reciprocity that if they ever decide to build their own tower, if they rezone, they would have an automatic right to swing their crane over onto the now built new towers. So it also benefits the value of their land. And the same thing goes with the underpinning agreements with, with anchors, for example. Generally, for a single family home, you don't need to install anchors um, other than maybe in some of the um, peat bog areas here. But, but usually those are, those are vertical anchors. So but but yeah, you 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 want to always treat your neighbor, you know, with respect and and proactively because if you don't, your your site could be shut down for either trespass or nuisance because the neighbor could seek an injunction or 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 via nuisance get monetary damages against the developer, and that has happened. So I'm going to ask the obvious question: What happens if the neighbor says no? <laughs> this happens all the time. So money talks. Sometimes you can get the neighbor to agree for, you know, a certain amount of money. And if they simply do not agree to it, there is some law that is developing in this area. It's not, it's not quite black and white, but the courts have acknowledged that if you decide to live in a densifying area or already a densified area or a changing area, then you must reasonably expect that construction is going to take place. And the courts have weighed the benefits of stopping a massive development, like say a 175 unit rental tower versus one person who may not like the crane to swing over their backyard. So generally you, you try and you, you paper it um, well enough for developers. So you send letter after letter and you give them certain deadlines and make reasonable offers. And if they don't want to play ball, then they don't play ball. Um, and such is life. And, and the developer will very likely make a, a business decision um, after weighing the risks and move forward with the development. And if they were to bring a court application or petition for an injunction, for example, to shut down the site, then you could likely rely on the paper trail and introduce that in such a, a court a court hearing and, and say, look, we, we tried. We, we gave this person every reasonable opportunity. They didn't want to to deal with this proactively. We even offered them money, which is in line with, with what we offered other neighbors. And, and I think that's probably the best you can do um, because at times you're just going to run into people that don't want to, that don't want to deal with it. So is this a typical part of like the due diligence process before a developer would purchase a piece of land? Like, are they going to the neighbor and saying, Hey, can I swing a crane over your property before they would purchase a property? Um, that would be a question for someone um, at a development company who who purchases these these type of of properties. Right. Um, what I can tell you is it generally happens in my experience, it generally happens after the land has been purchased, rezoned, and it usually tends to happen once the signs go up for the input hearings from the community because before then, you don't even yet know where your crane pad's going to be erected. Um, what type of bulk excavation you're going to do, where on the site you could potentially install the crane to swing. So generally, in my experience, it's always happened following purchase of the land. That makes sense. So what happens in that event? So I, I, I'm a developer. I'm going through, I'm going to build 100 rental towers, or 100, a tower here. 
uh, mid-rise with 100 units. And I got Melissa as my neighbor and she, I've made every effort possible. I can, I've got paper trails. I've made fair market offers. Best efforts have been used. I tell Melissa to hell with her. I'm going to build. She applies to an injunction. What are the chances of the court looking at it and relying on that I've made every effort to make this reasonable for a year and I can't reason with this woman? Is there a likelihood the court's going to say, hey, we believe that, you mean, this is a developing area. You mean, she should expect this. You've made every effort possible. Please proceed. Or does Melissa hold all the cards that she could actually stop that overall development from becoming a reality because she's refusing for underpinning or airspace rights or whatever it is that I need to sort of move my project along? Um, It's a very interesting question. I think if Melissa had a a very strong argument for this and and it was, you know, single family lot, she has a laneway in the back with tenants with small kids and the developers proposing to swing overhead every single day, 10 times with a 10,000 pound counterweight that is also going right over that laneway house. She might actually have a reasonable case there to say, I need an injunction. I need to shut down until the developer comes up with a reasonable alternative plan. Now, if Melissa is just being, you know, unreasonable and is not agreeing to the proposal for whatever reason, let's just, let's just assume she's being unreasonable then the court will likely not even grant the injunction. And if the court does grant the injunction, the injunction would likely only be for a certain limited amount of time to either uh, amend the proposal or have the parties try to come to agreement. I will say if an unreasonable person brings a court application and has the site shut down, that person might also be found ordered to pay costs. So Melissa has to be very careful. If she shuts down a site and it's found to be unreasonable later and the developer goes on the attack, then Melissa might be ordered to pay thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in delay costs. Well, so there you go. You better let me you better let me swing my crane now over I your just, property here. Now I just feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, there's a lot of contracts and construction contracts that need to you know exchange hands and stuff like that when we're starting to build the tower. If we can kind of look at the other spectrum of that, if I'm a landlord or potentially a tenant moving into a property, we're dealing with a lot of things called TIs or tenant improvements. Can you maybe speak to sort of what type of contracts would potentially have to get exchanged or could get exchanged during that tenant improvement process, maybe from a landlord or a tenant perspective? Yeah, so so tenant improvements generally happen between, you know, a lot of tenant improvements are done via the CM model, the construction management model, where you essentially pay someone like a CI firm a fee, um, a fee of the actual cost of the work or the, the actual cost of construction. Um, so there's two general models. You do the cost plus model or the stipulated sum model. So a contractor or a, or, or a construction manager might approach you who wants to do the, the TIs and say, hey, we can, we can build this for you for 500 grand. Or we will build this to you on a, uh, for you on a cost plus basis. All of the costs plus will charge you a 17% fee on top of it for our efforts. And that goes to overhead and profit. So those are the two general options open to a landlord or, or anyone who wants to, to, to complete the tenant improvements. And those agreements have to be generally drafted. I, I, would, I would suggest a lot of them are drafted from scratch. So they're b- bespoke because... 
you're dealing with, with oftentimes a scope that has maybe yet to be defined for larger, for larger uh, uh, tenants because you don't know yet exactly what they want, but they want to get going. So generally you have this pre-construction design phase. When that happens, when scope is undefined, you can imagine that a contractor has a very difficult time putting a number to it. So they generally just say, look, let's just do a cost plus because it, it, it limits my risk. It limits your risk because I might be underbidding it or overbidding it, which could really hurt the project in any event, but a lot of owners shy away from the lowest number because you don't want your general contractor to go broke because that, that comes with a whole other set of issues. So I think a cost plus model in most of those cases is the best way forward. So that's what I find is, is, is most common. Now, from a landlord perspective, obviously I've, I've, I've got my lease in place, my tenants moving forward, and we're excited to have the tenant. Is there anything on the landlord perspective that I should be concerned of or I should have contracted with my tenant maybe over and above my lease with respect to the tenant performing TI work within my unit? Yeah, so um, generally you want to be careful of, you know, for example, I, I know a lot of these newer units are commercial strata. So that's one issue where you have to be extremely careful. So not only do you have the, and this is also general, you, you generally have a, a base building um, MEP, so mechanical electrical plumbing. When you build or construct a new commercial tower, you have the base uh, trades installing HVAC, plumbing, electrical, the, 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 the basic items that you need for building to function. So when a tenant starts their tenant improvements, Generally, the, it's, it's up to the owner on title, the registered owner on title, not the tenant, to ensure that all of those base building components are not altered in a way that might damage the building, the common property of the building, or create a nuisance or havoc for other owners in the building. So that's that's one key issue. Another issue is, of course, you know, you want to have a, a tenant to, to ensure that there are certain start and completion dates. For the work, and you want to make sure that they're aware of all the bylaws, the noise issues that could arise, and the owner should always want to ensure that you know their lease agreement is up to speed with with respect to tenant improvements. So cost overruns or delays, or what happens if the if the construction project is shut down for as a result of of the owner's fault? Um, maybe there's something on title or the tenant's um, fault. So you need to have clauses that deal with that. So as you know, you, you know, a lot of these law firms that deal with lease agreements. So, you know, uh, it's always smart to consult a good lawyer who specializes in leases. I certainly don't. I, I consult lawyers for that as well. Now, what happens in a situation where maybe from a tenant and a landlord perspective, where the, the tenant finishes half their build out, damages the property, then takes off? Is that something that would be wrapped up on a construction legal perspective or is that far more of a litigation situation for like a corporate lawyer to deal with with regards to uh, the tenant not fulfilling the obligations of the, of the lease agreement um that one is tough so generally under a lease agreement you'd have um indemnification clauses and you'd have a tenant um take out either for example there's course of construction insurance which would insure the work while it's being built in case it gets damaged by fire or flood there's also Generally, the, the contractor must have CGL policy in place, so commercial general liability coverage for third-party loss. 
Usually those policies are $5 million minimum. So there are insurance uh, or policies of insurance in place after which the landlord could go um, in such a case. The, the, the question becomes, what is the true damages for a landlord to go after? You, you'd clearly have the breach of the lease agreement and the loss of the, the rental income the, the, uh, from the tenant. So that's one problem of, of your damages uh, claim. The other issue is now you're halfway through the work. Um, you got some value out of it, but it might be a, a, a very specialized office. Like what if it's a you know, like Abcellera is building all these lab type buildings in, in, in Mount Pleasant area. So what happens if they just stop that? Those are very specialized buildings. So this is a very complicated, extremely complicated type of dispute where you would have not only you have to engage in an analysis of all the insurances on that project, you'd have to analyze the lease agreement in place. You would have to consider the common law or judge-made law with respect to uh, heads of damages. And of course, the first step would be to to talk sense into the tenant and hopefully resolve it amicably. But if that's not possible, you'd have to go after the tenant and you you better hope that the tenant has given you a personal guarantee because if 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 it's just a company that's a you know a holding company or or a special purpose entity that has no assets and is judgment proof, then the landlord might take a significant loss in that case. Well, that doesn't sound like a very fun situation for anyone to find themselves in. So let's just hope, <laughs> let's hope the landlord did their credit worthiness check of the tenant's financials before giving them the keys. Tim, thank you yeah. once again for taking the time to join us today. You've sort of just barely touched on probably all of the uh, construction contracts and law that goes into building all these towers. We appreciate that. But before we let you go, we got a six-pack of lighthearted questions. We ask all of our guests so we get to know you a little bit more outside of the, uh, the office there. Do you have a few more minutes for us? Of course, yeah. The six-pack is powered by our good friends over at Red Point Law. Red Point Law, Corey, Tim, Falco, Scott, and the team, these are great people with a wealth of experience when it comes to commercial closings and private lending. And I just want to say, Corey, not to cut you off, they have a perfect five-star review on Google. So for all your commercial legal needs, visit them at redpointlaw.ca with offices in Vancouver and now open in downtown Kelowna. First question up. Favorite bar or restaurant? Ooh, that, um, without a doubt, Joe Forte's downtown. Oh, good one. I don't think we've had Joe Forte's. I think that, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You found yourself on death row. What is your death row meal? Ooh, Last um, meal, anything you want. Arteries don't matter at this point. Arteries do not matter. I would have to say probably two large Carano pizzas from Fraser Street. Oh. Ooh. That sounds good. That sounds pretty good. I forgot about that place. <laughs> that sounds pretty it's good. So I don't know what I'm having for dinner now. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> Favorite band or musician? Um, Favorite band or musician? Well, it has to be Nickelback. No. Oh. No. <laughs> this is, this I cannot is, win this war. Yes. No. This no, is terrible. No. This, Tim. Cancel the interview. Tim. It's done. The bromance is blossoming. It is fast-forwarding itself here. I'm coming over tonight. We're having pizza. We're having some beers. And we're listening to Nickelback. I'm out of here. Yeah, that's right. All right. We're, we're, I have a new co-host next week. I'm sorry, oh, Melissa. Goodness. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> On a serious note, favorite band or musician? He was serious. Um, I, 
I love Elton John. I just oh, went to his great. concert with the wife, yep. and uh, I, I'd have to say Elton John. Good yeah. answer. El- Elton John's awesome. Good I, I was. Uh, I, I probably saw the concert everyone went to recently here. Yeah. I could not yep. believe how amazing he was live, and considering how long he's done this. Yeah. Amazing energy. He was just phenomenal was concert. I was there too, yeah. in tears. Really, it was it was great. Well, now, were you crying because was it was crying. Elton John and not Nickelback that came out? Is that what you were expecting? Is that <laughs> oh. why you were upset? No, I was so happy. It was oh, happy, happy tears. tears. Yes. Happy tears. Okay, yeah. okay, all right. Well, just so you know, that Nickelback did cover Saturday Night's All Right for a fight. I wish they didn't. Well, it's yeah. yeah. It's okay. Just next time you're listening to your music, there, right. there's a Nickelback version Can't for wait. you. Okay. All right. Next question: Your drunk karaoke song. If you were given a mic. You had a couple drinks. You had to sing something. What are you going to sing? Oh, God. Um, I'm awful at this. I actually, I have no idea. I would, um, my favorite song is Working Class Hero, but I think that would put everybody to sleep in the, in the uh, <laughs> bar. Tiny Dancer? I was going to say I that. Was thinking there t- you go. That's 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 everyone knows Tiny Dancer. See, you get yeah. Tiny Dancer yeah. going, they're going to sing with you. Yeah, and, right. you're, and there you're you go. Be that's, in tears. That's the yeah, they'll be in. They'll be in tears. <laughs> Next question up: uh, a book recommendation that all of our listeners have to read doesn't have to be real estate related. Um, anything Hemingway to have and have not. Um, for whom the bell tolls. Those two books are amazing. Good choices. Good choices. Awesome. All right. Last question: something you've purchased for under fifteen hundred fifteen hundred dollars that has had a positive impact on your life. Oh man. Um, I would say, I would say my stationary bike, honestly. Um, I have this, it might not fit under that budget, but it's, it's close. Um, yeah, I ride it every day. It's great. Is it a Peloton? No, no Peloton. No Peloton. I, but, but I do turn on the TV, but I, it's, uh, oh. it's something that's really helped me stay stay somewhat in shape in the morning. So I, I really enjoy it. Well, Corey and I just had a conversation before we were on air. We have something very strange in common. We both used to teach spin classes, if you can no believe kidding. it, on a stationary bike. But how, bike. Did you, how did you fall off the stationary bike, Corey? Oh, yeah. Fall? yeah. I'll, t- I'll tell you. So um, I think it's just a function of, of probably the maximum weight allowed on a pedal. But I was... <laughs> I was pedaling. I, I, you know, I thought I thought I was doing really good, and out of nowhere, my left pedal literally broke, and I like literally fell off head first on a on a, If there were, if you could have videotaped this, this would have been the viral video of the year. I can't imagine what it looked like. I felt like I was rolling down a hill with skis on, and like, like they felt like that. And then the worst part is when I call like Peloton to like report my broken pedal. They laughed. The girl made it sound like I was the first person ever in yeah. the history of Peloton to break a pedal. Like you she was, were, like, she was probably. like, oh, oh, <laughs> oh no. And then the guys show up to fix it and I'm giving them the pedal. And the, you know, you know, when like the two people kind of look at themselves, like what the f- just happened to this guy here? They were looking <laughs> at each other like this guy's an idiot. Like what did he do here to the pedal? So uh, yeah, this it, it, man broke a steel reinforced pedal. Yeah, yeah, and I, I like to tell everyone it's because these big, massive bull-like legs. But it's probably the fact that my body now looks like a pear <laughs> is probably what it is. I'm probably just too uh, too heavy for the peloton. Is probably what it's telling bottom me. Bottom heavy. Bottom 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 heavy. <laughs> it's all it's all the mu- it's all the muscle in my legs. It's really what it's. Sorry, about. I brought that up. <laughs> yeah. Really, what Sorry it is. I brought that up. Well, Tim, thank you so much for joining us again. How can our guests find out more about yourself and Sports Shoots and Company and everything you guys are doing over there? Um, it just, uh, anyone can go to our website, sportshoots.ca or reach out to me at tim at sportshoots.ca. Call us, 
email us any anytime. Well, Tim, thank you once again for taking the time to come on and sort of exposing that part of the law and everything that goes behind it. We really appreciate it. And thank you once again. Thanks, Tim. That was Absolutely. great. Absolutely. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Melissa. Thanks, Tim. Take care. Bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. There you have it, folks. Our interview with Tim Sportshoots of Sportshoots and Company, construction lawyers, As I said in the intro, I was very excited for that episode because there's a lot of stuff that I see happen, that I know about, that I know nothing about. Tim taps into a little bit of that today and just how that whole world works. Yeah, I learned a lot from Tim. That was a great conversation. Well, I can say before we recorded the episode with Tim, me and you were just talking about what type of law that encompasses. And I was explaining to you about underpinning and air rights and all that stuff. Nothing I've ever thought about before. It's really insightful. I don't think a lot of people think about it unless you're in that industry. And just to find out sometimes potentially the power your neighbor may or may not have Mm -hmm. in this situation, it's it's a little daunting when you're spending that much money to do things. And I can speak firsthand experience uh, with regards to a property a long time ago that uh, me and some partners were going to buy for a development purpose. But we ended up not going down that road because of all the property owned around us was by one entity. And uh, they made it very known that we would have crane swinging problems with them owning all the properties around us. So not wanting to go down that road financially, we ended up bowing out and surprise, surprise, (laughs) the neighbor purchased the property. Uh-huh. So, uh, um, gotta be nicer to your neighbors. I know, Corey. I know. This is I try. Why you bake some cookies, I walk try. them over. I try, yeah. No, but the problem is, if I bake some cookies, it's gonna just be <laughs> cookie dough. But I think one thing that we should highlight about the show, which to me was probably the most, the best part, to be honest with you, as exciting as the show was, Nickelback. That was a purposeful, awkward silence. I, yeah, I'm I, not engaging in this anymore. No, I think I think the producers are going to drop some cricket noises in there. Tim brought up Nickelback, which was great. Oh, you can tell he listens. I to almost the- stopped. I almost hit the big red record button and just stopped the interview. Oh no! I think no. I should. Well, Tim's an avid listener because you know he made sure we he circled back to my Peloton experience. Yeah, which is consistent. And the worst part about it is, and I'll be I'll be honest with you. The same left pedal that I broke is feels a little wobbly now when I'm biking, and I'm probably 20 pounds heavier than when I broke it. So it's <laughs> going to be very interesting. Stay tuned for the next couple of weeks to hear about my injury firsthand, and maybe I'll, maybe I'll try to like tape myself biking just in case I do go head over heels. We would be a great Instagram story for the podcast. Yeah, there you go. You're going to go viral. So for anyone who's looking to get into commercial real estate or is looking to buy, sell, or lease, they can reach William Wright Commercial anytime at 604. 604- 428-5255 at our Vancouver office. You can reach me by email, Corey at WilliamWright.ca. Always love hearing from guests about the show and some great show ideas. Or you can visit our website, WilliamWright.ca. Sign up for the latest and greatest news. Uh, and we'll try to put you in touch with the best agent throughout the province to help service uh, service your needs. And for your residential needs, you can call me at 778-869-4477 or send me an email at Melissa at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Thanks for listening, guys. Another great episode next week. All right. Have a good week. Bye-bye. Subscribe today.